announcements, so let us please rise and lift up our hearts to worship him. The text to which we're giving our attention is the same text that we've read together, 2 Kings 4, verses 8 through 37. You would be helped by having your Bibles open as we'll be working through the text and pointing out uh, details that are there. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, just like two weeks ago when we looked at uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, I would say that the main theme, the main idea in this chapter is the same one. God's compassion for his children and their faith in him. That, that interchange, that balance between those two things, the two sides of the same coin. God shows his grace towards those who fear him. And it's by fearing him and trusting him that we experience and receive his grace. Uh, That was the the sermon uh, last time, and we see it again in this text, even though it's a very different circumstance, uh, yet once again we see God's deep love and goodness towards those who fear Him, and at the same time the, the trust and the faith that those believers have in Him. Now, I want to say something from the outset at, at the beginning of this passage, and it's something that really applies to the whole of the book of Kings and really much of the Old Testament and the New Testament for that matter. And we need to, to understand this well, and it's this. This passage will mean very little to you if you do not in the first place accept and believe that it happened. That, that should be obvious But it does need to be said in our Western skeptical age that looks down on things like miracles as if they are fables. If this happened, then it's an amazing story of God's power and God's grace. If you have difficulty accepting that it happened, don't expect the story to mean much to you. There's an approach in, in modern uh, hermeneutics, that's interpretation of the Bible, that wants to take stories that we no longer believe happened and try and find theological truths that we can somehow pull out of them. The Bible does not work that way. This was written for the community of faith, those who knew God's power and accepted that God truly does things uh, like this. This is the record of, of the prophet's themselves, put together by the prophets for you, for the sake of the church, people who knew their God and who had experienced his power. And so these books bring us over and over again face to face with the miraculous nature of God's workings. In our culture, we tend to be afraid, we shy away from books like these because we often don't know what to do with them because the truth is, So many of us in our culture fail to remember that God works in these ways. We fail to, in the end, believe that these things truly happen. They they stretch, these books stretch our understanding of of what's possible, and and we can find them incredible. And that's certainly true for a text like the one that we see today, where the prophet raises a little boy to life again. Well, in the end, it comes down to what you believe about God. It's no more incredible, really, to believe that God raises children from the dead than it is to believe that God created the universe by the word of his power, that God gives us our every breath and heartbeat, that these things come from God. If God does that, 
It's no great thing for God to raise a child. So the question is, is that your God? Uh, Is he a God who involves himself in history, who gets his hands dirty, so to speak, with the affairs of, of human life? Is he a God who not just made creation, but is involved in it, who cares for his creation? Is he a God who, who instills in our conscience the, the knowledge of right and wrong and who sets before our eyes the, the testimonies of his creation, his fingerprint on, on all that he has made, uh, and who endows us with the ability to, to see that, to recognize his work and his hand in creation and also in history. And if he is, if he is all that, why wouldn't he then be a God who also involves himself in our own lives, in miraculous and powerful ways? And so it comes down then to what you believe about God. Is this a closed universe where, where God created it, but God cannot or does not intervene with it? The sort of watchmaker God who, who designs the universe like a perfect watch that then is left to tick away by its own natural laws for, for the rest of eternity? Or is God active and working in creation already since the first days of creation? Uh, that's the God that you find in Scripture, a God who's busy with the affairs of, of this world. And if that's not who our God is, then I can say from the outset of this, of this text, this passage will not do much uh, for us. It was written by people and for people who knew their God, who had seen his miraculous and powerful working in history. And for them, uh, yes, a text like this is amazing, It certainly is amazing, but it's not surprising as far as God's character is concerned. This is very much in line with the God that they knew. And and so I pray that that would also be our our faith and our confidence as we open this text to engage what's what's written here. Uh, Jesus said many times in his ministry, to him who has, he said this about faith, to him who has more will be given to him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that's really the effect of of texts like these. To those who know that God does things like this, that God really works in these ways, these passages are strengthening, encouraging, and uplifting. For those who do not know such a God, these texts do very little. In fact, they even stretch your incredulity even further. So, brothers and sisters, this is who God is. Uh, See it and believe it in in this text. Be a part of the believing community throughout the ages who knew their God and and put their faith and hope in him. I have as as many as as, uh, seven points to take from this text. They're all very brief, and really my goal is just to point them out so you can see them. I didn't bother even putting them in the bulletin, but each is, each is very brief. But it all centers around the theme that you do have in, in your bulletin, which is God's powerful working through his prophet for the good of those who fear him. The first point that I, I want to see here is, is that the fear of God, so that's at the end of that theme through the, for those who fear him, the fear of God is, is shown, is manifested in simple acts of service. 
You see that in this Shunammite woman that we're introduced to in in verse 8. She's introduced to us as a wealthy woman, we never actually get to know her name, who lived in Shunem. So that's deep in in northern Israel, far, far away from the border with, with Judah. And we discover that this is a woman who fears God. That's what the text tells us. In some ways, she's, she's uh, from a human perspective, the opposite of the woman that you find in verses 1 through 7, except for the fact that they both fear God. That woman was dirt poor. She had no husband, no children. And, and this woman is, is wealthy. And so in the Bible, it's never as simple as, you know, Wealthy people are good, poor people are bad, or poor people are good and wealthy people are bad. There's, there's good wealthy and evil wealthy. There's good poor and, and evil poor, uh, good and, and godly and ungodly. And so here we meet a, a godly woman who was also wealthy. And you notice she uses that wealth in service to God. As part of the believing community, she knew the prophet Elisha. And just like the last woman, the, the widow in verses 1 through 7, she, as, the, as a part of the church, had special access to the prophet of God. And, and so verse 8 uh, says that she urged him to stop and, and eat at her place. So this became a custom for Elisha. He would always eat at this woman's house. And we see her fear of God or love for God, in the words that she says to her husband, where she says, Behold, I know that this is a holy man of God who continually passes our way. Let's make a small room for him on on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes in, he uh, he can go in there. So she recognizes that Elisha is a holy man of God and And she saw that as a wealthy woman, she had a special opportunity to render an act of service, not just to Elisha, but through this to to God himself. The fear of God is manifested in simple acts of service. As a pastor, I love that she included a little table with a lamp for him to to study. You can only imagine what sermons were written there, and uh, perhaps even the records that became part of 2 Kings were written on, on that table. And so you can see that the fear of God, that that reverence and trust and love for God, is manifested in these simple, very practical acts of service to his kingdom. When we fear God, when we love our God, we recognize that our time, our money, our resources can be used in service to God's kingdom. And so we look for those opportunities. We don't wait for for people to ask us, But like this woman, we look for those opportunities and we say, hey, here's a way that I can serve the God I love. Now you notice the husband's not prominent in in this story. Uh, I don't think we should take that to mean he's not a believer. Uh, At the very least, the things he says to his wife, like he he affirms that that she should go and make this room. Uh, And the things that he says to his wife uh, shows that he is familiar with the customs of believers. He talks about new moons and, and Sabbaths. But the fact that the husband is not prominent does show us that it was this woman's initiative that led to the room being built. It's her faith that, that Scripture wants to put on display here. That's the first point, then. The fear of God is manifested in simple acts of service. Secondly, we want to recognize the goodness of God shown to those who love him. 
The goodness of God shown to those who love him. Uh, we saw this last time too in verses 1 through 7. And now you see it again. And, and you see it over and over in Elisha's ministry. Uh, Elisha's ministry was primarily a ministry to the church. To those who loved God. And in that dark time, the one place where you see God's love and God's working is there within the community of the church. Most of Elisha's ministry was was carried out there in the presence of fellow believers. That's where God sent him. That's where he wanted to minister, to heal, to encourage, to teach, to lead. Their concerns were God's concerns. We see God's love for believers. And so verse 11 tells us that one day, as Elisha was resting there, he felt compelled to to reach out to this woman who who had done so much for him to see if there was something he could do in in return for her. And and the thing that struck me here about Elisha's request is you notice how how Elisha, even though he's a man of God, even though he he had already done powerful, uh, miraculous things, or I should say God had done them through him, that doesn't mean that miracles were just happening everywhere that Elisha went. He's still very human, and and the request that he makes, or the offer he makes to this woman was was very human. He's, He's thinking about what resources do I have at my disposal that I can render to to this woman. And, and so Elisha is very human. He knew that he was a VIP in Israel. He had special influence before the king. And so he tells Gehazi, uh, maybe I can say something to the king or to the commander of the army on behalf of, of this woman. Maybe there's something that she, she wants that I can help her to, to get. Now, just by the way, if you're wondering why uh, Elijah is always going through Gehazi instead of talking directly to this woman, it's very awkward in this in this whole text, that it's always going through Gehazi. But that's just part of the decorum of that day. Uh, The assumption here is that because of Elisha's very high status within the the church, uh, it was considered inappropriate to speak directly to him, but you would speak through his his servant. So that's, that's the way it goes in this chapter. So Elisha asks her through Gehazi if there's anything that she would like him to, to bring before the king. And the response of this woman is, is really, really simple, but really beautiful. And you get a, another glimpse into her character. She simply tells him, I dwell among my own people. In other words, no thank you. In this community, we, we look after one another, and I'm very content with that. I don't need anything from the king or the commander of the army. And so you see in her this, this beautiful uh, contentment. She's not striving after the halls of power. She's not grasping for influence by, by what she did for Elisha. It wasn't to get something for herself. It was simply her love for God. And, and she was content with the place then that God had given her. But Elisha still felt compelled to do something for her. And so he asked Gehazi again what else he might do for her. And uh, it's interesting, you have to give Gehazi some credit here. I know most of you know, many of you know anyway, that Gehazi turns out to be a bit of a scoundrel uh, later on. But you notice he was aware of the power of God. And, and so he suggests something that Elisha hadn't even thought of. Maybe God could give this woman a child. She was barren, her husband was old, and that meant that the day was going to come soon that she was going to be a widow with no heir in Israel. And that was a very perilous place to be in that society. 
So Elisha asks Gehazi to call her again, and she comes and stands in the doorway, and he tells her, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. It's interesting that these happen to be the exact same words that the angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham and Sarah uh, when, when the angel of the Lord was standing there in the doorway of Abraham's tent. And what I, what I want to emphasize in this is simply that we see in this again the goodness of God towards those who fear him. This woman wasn't in particular distress like the woman in, in verses 1 through 7. And she expresses contentment and yet God saw and God knew the pain that she was carrying in her for being barren, for not having children. And that pain mattered to God. Such is God's unique, particular attention given to his own believers. They have special access to God. They get to call him Father. And he loves them with a Father's love and shows them a Father's compassion. As the Lord Jesus taught his disciples, your heavenly Father knows all of your needs. And it's good for us to observe God's special compassion towards barren women. See, in our society, we tend to give more attention to, uh, to those who have lost children, and, and rightly so. It's, it's certainly a, a, a terrible trial. But we often overlook or forget those that, that cannot have children and would love to have children. Uh, but God does not miss that uh, miss that pain. And, and you see that many times in redemptive history. You think of uh, Sarah who was barren most of her life, Rebecca, who was barren 20 years before uh, she had children with Jacob, uh, Rachel, uh, Samson's mother, Samuel's mother, Hannah, in the New Testament, Elizabeth, all these barren women who had God's special attention. In, in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, there was a lot more sympathy towards barren women than, than is often found in our culture. Uh, but it's a pain that is certainly known to God. Now we can see that the woman, in the woman's reaction that she, it's almost as if she didn't even dare to believe this promise. Uh, such was her pain that she didn't dare to even hope anymore for, for children. It's another glimpse into this uh, woman's life and, and her faith. She did her work and she served within the church. She was joyful in that service. She was generous in, in, her, in her service, even while all the, t- all the same time carrying around a deep pain and, and a deep disappointment. She wasn't lashing out at God, but she was serving God in spite of uh, the pain. Uh, Proverbs 14 verse 13 says, Even in laughter the heart may ache. And the end of joy is often still grief. And that was life for this woman as it is really for for so many. Behind the faithful husband and the nice home and the decent income that she had, it was not a perfect life. Uh, She certainly wasn't serving and loving God because of the things that God had given her. She, She dealt with real pain. Now, we don't know uh, how often she, she prayed about this anymore. We can assume that she probably did in the past, but her reaction to Elisha suggests that she had, at this point, stopped hoping and probably stopped praying because it was simply too painful to hope any longer. And so she says to him, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. And yet, verse 17 tells us, the woman did conceive, and she bore a son 
about that time the following year, just as Elisha said to her. Such is the love and the compassion of God that sometimes he answers these prayers with yes. And it's a reminder to to not stop uh, praying. It's true in God's wisdom, he doesn't open every womb. He, he, he has his purposes, and yet he knows and understands that pain. And we see in this text how much he loves those who fear him, including those who, who experience uh, trials and, and pain and, and long-term disappointment. That was number two. We're going to go faster now. Uh, thirdly, we, we have to face in the, re- the reality in this text that we also see the mysterious working of God for his own purposes. The account of this child's life is is very short. In verse 17, he's born. Three verses later, he dies. We don't hear anything about his life in between. And here we encounter then the painful, mysterious working of God. Why should God give the gift of life to this woman only then to snatch it away? That's the point that she makes to Elisha as well. Didn't I ask you, uh, di- or di- I didn't ask you for a son. Didn't I tell you, don't deceive me? Of course, those are the words of a broken heart. I don't think she means that, that she wishes she never had the son in the first place. But such is the, the mysterious work of God. Sometimes he blesses only in order to take that blessing uh, later on again. Uh, it's as Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And I spoke a moment ago about God's compassion towards those who love and fear him. But that doesn't mean that God never acts in ways that are beyond our understanding. God's love for this woman cannot be denied. You can't, you can't deny that. Elisha puts, Elisha's ministry puts that love of God on full display for everyone to see. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't sometimes work in our lives for his purposes that surpass our understanding. When God takes a child away from a father or mother who love him and fear him, it's never because of a deficit in God's love for them. He treasures his own. He cherishes his own. And he always works for their good. It's what the Apostle Paul tells us in in, in Romans, that God, God works everything for the good of those who fear him. We're told in Psalm 116, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, which is certainly also true for the children of his saints. So God's love for his own believers does not fade or waver in times when he gives them trials or when he seems to take away their blessings. And his call in those times is a call to trust him and to turn to him and run to him, especially when we don't understand his purposes. And that's what this woman does, and that's the the fourth thing that we want to see in this text, the immediate response of faith on the part of this woman, the immediate response of faith. We can see her total determination to get to Elisha as fast as possible. Uh, Now, I don't think her husband even realized uh, what had actually happened. Apparently, he thought it was just a headache. He took taken the boy home, but he doesn't seem to be even aware that the boy had died. We can see that by his surprise to see his wife running after the prophet. He says, what, it's not a new moon or a, a Sabbath or a feast day. Why are you running out to the prophet? And she doesn't even bother to tell him. 
Gives us a glimpse of how desperate she was to get to the prophet of God. Uh, Her response, both to her husband and then to Gehazi, in in the ESV she says, all is well. In the Hebrew, it's actually just a single word, shalom, which, which simply means peace. And in the Hebrew, the word shalom could function sort of like a greeting, um, like uh, it's, it's, it would be how you would say hello to somebody. But it would also be if you ask someone, how are you doing? And we say, fine. The shalom had the same function in Hebrew. And so she just says, I'm fine, and keeps going uh, towards the prophet. Now, we shouldn't say that she's deceiving her husband or deceiving Gehazi when she says, I'm fine. It's just like in English, if, if you say, I'm fine, it doesn't always mean you're fine. It sometimes just means I don't have time to talk about uh, what's going on right now. And that's, that's the sense in which this woman says to the prophet or, or to Gehazi, I'm fine. Uh, so, when she, so when her husband asks her, she just says, I'm fine, because that's how determined she was to get to Elisha. She knew that the only place where there was still hope for her child was with the prophet of God who had already once now shown his power during her time of barrenness. And so we see a response of faith. Now Shunem is pretty far inland and Mount Carmel where the prophet was is is along the coast. It was about a 15 or 18 mile journey. And when she arrived, she, she certainly would have arrived at night. If you think of the boy dying uh, during, the, during the heat of the day, it would have taken several hours to get to Mount Carmel. So she would have gotten there at night. And she hurries right past Gehazi with the same word. He asks her, is everything okay? And she says, I'm fine, because she has one destination, and that's the prophet of God. That's her response of faith. What else do you do but run to the one through whom you have access to the power of God. She came to Elisha and fell before him, clinging at his feet. And, and here we should recognize the fifth thing in, in this chapter, and that is the, the character and compassion that marks the prophet of God. The character and compassion that marks the prophet of God. Uh, you see immediately a difference here between uh, Gehazi and Elisha. Uh, both of them are, are human, and we, we've already seen Elisha's human limitations. And here a second time we find him perplexed by this woman's behavior. He genuinely does not know what's going on. He tells Gehazi, she's in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. But notice that the prophet of God, as a servant of God, reflects the compassion and mercy of God. Gehazi sees this woman falling before Elisha's feet, and he sees a total breach of decorum. And so he forcibly pushes her away. He says, he must be thinking, this is the prophet of God, and a very important person. Nobody approaches the prophet in this way. This is disrespectful, woman. And it doesn't matter if, yeah, you've shown hospitality to him, but you can't do this to the prophet. Where's the respect? And it's not wrong for Gehazi to care about decorum. We can see that Elisha himself respected decorum when he spoke to the woman through Gehazi earlier. But here, we also see that compassion matters more than decorum. Always. 
There's a time and place for working on decorum, for making sure that the way we dress and the titles uh, we use are appropriate and carry the proper respect. But that time, Elisha recognized, was obviously not now. And Gehazi completely missed that. And really, if you, if you read between the lines, it seems that Gehazi's love of, of decency and decorum was not really based on his respect for the office of Elisha, because you can see how deep that respect goes in the next chapter, but more because he was offended that the woman didn't respect his position as the one who spoke on behalf of Gehazi. He's or of Elisha. He's Elisha's go-to guy. And so it seems he was personally offended that she didn't give him the respect that he was due. Everyone knows you go to Elisha through Gehazi. And sadly, we see then here already the real character of Gehazi showing through, and it's only getting worse in the next chapter. He was in leadership in the church for all the wrong reasons, for personal honor and gain. He reminds you of the scribes and Pharisees that the Lord Jesus spoke about in Matthew 23, where he said, They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. It's not a love for God. It's a love for himself. And the true servant of... Uh, but. On the other hand, the true servant of God, Elisha, reflects the character of God and also the compassion of God. Unlike Gehazi, Elisha recognized this was not a time and place to talk about decency and standards and, and who you go through. He recognized here's a woman in bitter distress, and he feels compassion for her. Well, in this way, I, I hope you can see already how Elisha foreshadows the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because there's almost nothing that marks the ministry of Christ more than compassion. Uh, we, we see a glimpse of, of the compassion that, that marks the heart of our Savior. Uh, so many times when we read through the Gospels, we're told Jesus was filled with compassion. That's true. Sometimes God works beyond our understanding in ways that we don't fathom. Sometimes God seems to shatter our lives and and leave us broken. But we need to know, and we can see it so clearly here in this passage, that God not only still loves us, but that even as he works for his purposes, for our good, in ways we don't understand, even then he is filled with compassion for the pain that we experience because we don't understand what he's doing. He knows that we don't understand. He knows that we don't know why he's doing what he's doing. His wisdom is higher than ours. His purposes are better than ours. But even as he works for that greater goal, yet he knows our weakness and our distress, and he feels great compassion for us. And so we can see God's compassion in the compassion of God's prophet. And, and, and so it must be. God's servants, so this is a word for the deacons and the elders as well, God's servants must reflect God's character and especially God's compassion. The ministry of our Savior Christ was filled from beginning to end with compassion. And so deep was his compassion that it took him to the cross where he bore the punishment that we should have borne so that we would not be cast away. 
The Lord Jesus prayed to the Father before he went. This was in, a, in, a, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before he went to the cross, he, he prayed to the Father, I'm praying for them, speaking of his disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Keep them, O Father, from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me. Where I am. Such is the compassion of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we see that, or a glimpse of that, already here in Elisha. So Elisha uh, listens to the cry of this, this broken woman, and it soon becomes clear to him why she had come as she pours her heart uh, out before him. And we see Elisha responds with immediate action. He tells Gehazi to tie up his garment, take his staff, go to the boy, and don't stop to anyone who might even greet you, but lay your staff on the face of the child. And so Gehazi goes. But the mother of this child recognizes something that even Elisha didn't seem to recognize. This is the the sixth point, uh, which I'll make very briefly, and it's this. The singular place of God's prophet to speak God's word and to exercise God's power. Nobody can do that but the prophet of God. Now that's why the the woman had come to Elisha in the first place, and that's why she completely ignores Gehazi and falls at Elisha's feet. She recognized that he alone in that day was the one who carried the word of God and the one through whom God was working. And so he was the one in whom God's power was going to be found. She knew that not everyone who claims to act on God's behalf is indeed laboring under God's power. It's by faith, that we saw this last time as well, by faith that we receive and experience God's power. But that faith... That faith is not a a general faith, a sort of general confidence uh, that supernatural things can happen. It's what people often mean by, by, you know, you need to have faith. It's sort of a, a general faith that, you know, powerful things can happen, you know, in life. Biblical faith is specifically directed towards the one whom God has sent. Biblical faith is the ears to hear the voice of the one whom God has sent, and it's the eyes to see the work of God through the one that God has sent. And it's there in the indiv- and it's directed towards the individuals whom God has sent. Biblical faith, in other words, recognizes the true servants of God and and listens to them and obeys them and puts its trust in them. There's a special application, of course, towards Jesus Christ, the one whom God has sent. Faith is looking to him because he is the one who came from God. That kind of faith is a gift that only the Spirit is able to give. Uh, Recognize uh, that this woman didn't only believe that that Elisha was, was powerful. She didn't only believe that because he had already proven that once. Even before that, she already recognized this is a holy man of God. And, and she had said as much to, to her husband. And that faith was only subsequently strengthened by seeing the power of God in Elisha. And that's how it works. God gives us true faith so that we can hear his voice and the servants whom he sends. And it's only by hearing, believing, and obeying that we then subsequently experience God's power. 
and we witness uh, God's miraculous might. It's the same thing that happened to the widow in in verses 1 through 7. It was by hearing and obeying the prophet that she witnessed God's miraculous power. And, And so this woman then clung to Elisha because by faith she knew that he was the one sent by God and no one else would be of any use. And so Elisha then arose and followed her. Now along the way they met Gehazi already coming on his way back after apparently failing to to raise the child. I don't think we have to blame Gehazi for for failing here. Elisha was the man of God. Elisha had had the double portion of Elijah's spirit. Some people in in the commentaries argue that if, if only Gehazi had more faith, he would have been able to raise the child as well. Maybe. We don't know. But Elisha was the one who, who, who carried the power of God. And that's what the woman recognized right from the outset. No one but the prophet of God will do. And so Elisha came to the house. And, and here we'll consider then our, our final point, which is the note that this story ends on, which is the power of God working for the joy of those who believe in him. The power of God working for the joy of those who believe in him. We see again the special compassion of God's, uh, the special compassion that God has for his own people that characterized Elisha's entire ministry. And and just like verses 1 through 7, this exercise of God's power happens behind closed doors. You notice that a second time. This is not the world's privilege to see God working, it's the privilege of the church, the privilege of God's people to witness God's power. So Elisha closes the door behind him, and he stretched himself over the child. Uh, we should remember, if our memory is good, uh, that Elijah did the same thing for the widow in, in Zarephath when, when her son died, and he raised her son. That was 1 Kings 17. And just like Elijah, Elisha prays to God and then stretched himself over the child. It's interesting, Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, stretched himself over the child three times. Elisha only does it twice, maybe suggesting that God's power through Elisha was working even more mightily than, than in Elijah. It's only speculation. But, but even more, we, we need to recognize how, how this, just like with Elijah, was an act of him laying down his life for this child. That's what the, the symbolism is here. He stretches himself over this child as if to say, God, give my life to this child. There, there is a, a type of death and resurrection happening here. In a sense, Elisha lays down his life for the child so that, uh, so that um, by the power of God, he might be raised with, with that child. And I hope you see there too the foreshadowing of the work of Christ, laying down his life so that with him we are also raised by his power. Indeed, Elijah foreshadows uh, the Lord Jesus not only by laying down his life, but also by becoming unclean for the sake of, of this child. By touching a dead body, Elijah, or Elisha would have been made unclean. But instead of the, the child's uncleanness passing to Elisha, what happens instead is Elisha's cleanliness, Elisha's cleanness passes to the child. The body warms and life returns to the child. And I hope you see there also foreshadowing then of the work of Christ, taking our uncleanness on himself, becoming unclean for our sake, so that through him we might become clean. 
So brothers and sisters, I hope you can see through the ministry of Elisha here small reflections and foreshadowings of the work of Christ, which was even much more powerful. As uh, is mentioned elsewhere, there, there were many other widows to whom Elijah and Elisha could have ministered, and there were many other dead children that God could have raised to life through Elisha, but he didn't. And it wasn't because the power of God was limited or the compassion of God was limited, but because God's purposes were higher. God was aiming at a much greater salvation than the one that he was giving here. This is a picture of God's purposes and God's power and God's plans of salvation. It's only a picture. God is aiming not just to raise us from the dead once, only to die again later, as this boy certainly would have, but to raise us forever through the work of Jesus Christ, to live with him forever. And the power of God displayed in in Elisha and and much more in Jesus Christ doesn't only aim at, at God's glory, certainly does. God does this for his glory, but he also does this for our joy. He aims at the joy of those who love him. Such as the love and the compassion and the wisdom of God, uh, that he, he desires to do all he does, not only for his glory, but also for our joy. That's what Paul also meant when he, when he said in Romans 8.28 that we know for, the, that the, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we know all things work together for God's glory, but they also are directed for our good. This woman was was one of those called according to God's purposes, and the joy that she experienced at receiving her son back was only a small foretaste of the joy that God was aiming at ultimately in his work through Jesus Christ. We see a a testimony of this in in baptism as well, God's goodness and God's everlasting grace uh, towards those who who fear him. He didn't have to extend his covenant, after all, to our children. God didn't, he wasn't bound to do that. Uh, But he does, and he promises to work powerfully, even miraculously, also in the lives of our children, to, to raise them by the power of his spirit from spiritual deadness to a living faith and relationship with him and to hold on to them forever so that he may also raise them on the last day to live with him forever. So brothers and sisters, let's learn from the vision of God that we see in this chapter and from the faith of this woman Cling to the one whose name means my God saves. It's the name of Elisha. It's the name of the Lord Jesus. The one who carries the word of God. The one who exercises God's power. And who does so for the ultimate glory of God. And for the joy of God's people. That's our God. And that's our Elisha. Our Savior whom God has sent. The Lord Jesus Christ. So run to him. Hold on to him. Cling to him, pray to him, trust in him, and see in him the depth of God's love and compassion and power for those who fear him. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 68, stanzas 3, 8, and 11.